You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles this afternoon to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read the verses 18 through 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it, is, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 6, the Heidelberg Catechism. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Days 5 and 6 have been accused by many of being of the more boring, logical and systematic of the Lord's Days in the Heidelberg Catechism. These Lord's Days discuss, in a somewhat systematic way, the logic behind God's justice and our need, as human beings, for a certain type of Savior. Now, the part about the logical and the systematic discussion nature of these Lord's Days is almost impossible to deny. It's a very clear and methodical description of the person of our mediator 
even before that person is revealed to us. But I'd like to challenge this afternoon the idea that it's a dry and a boring and overly scholastic treatment of this message. Now, it may be that my exposition of this Lord's Day does not get beyond being dry and boring and overly systematic, but I think that the Catechism does. Especially in Lord's Day 6, the Catechism gets to the very heartbeat of the person of Jesus Christ, of the work of Jesus Christ, and of the impact that that has on our lives, on every aspect of our lives, as well as this whole world in which we live. Do you think that the message of Jesus Christ, our mediator, is very dry and dusty and boring to the people of Haiti right now? It's not. The knowledge that Jesus Christ is their mediator in their time of need is life itself for them. The crux of the matter comes in question and answer 18, where the mediator is revealed as none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that we, of course, knew all along, who has become for us, we put it in the translation of the NIV, wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. This quotation gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus Christ is our life. It doesn't use that word exactly, but... I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says that Jesus Christ is our wisdom. You see, in order to understand the Apostle Paul with this word and in this passage, we need to think like a Jew. Like a Jew would who's grown up with the Old Testament. Like a Jew would have who's grown up with the book of Proverbs. And so when we hear the word wisdom... We need to go back to that Old Testament wisdom so much portrayed in the book of Proverbs and in certain passages in that book. We need to go to passages like Proverbs 3 verse 18 that says that wisdom is a tree of life to all who embrace her. To all who lay hold of her will be blessed. We need to go to Proverbs 8 where it says that whoever finds me, this is wisdom speaking, finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. And so in the Catechism, after detailing the necessary characteristics of our mediator, quotes the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, it's showing that our whole life before God, our our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption is intimately tied up in the person of Jesus Christ. Our whole life is very closely connected to who He is and, of course, to what He's done. To have any other mediator than Him would be to face certain death. But to have Him as our mediator is to have life. And life in the fullest and truest sense both today and tomorrow and for eternity. The person and work of Jesus Christ is intimately connected to every aspect of our lives. The person and work of Jesus Christ is intimately connected to every aspect of our lives. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. 
Now, before we get into sort of the exposition of what these words mean and how they relate to our lives, we should consider first the different arenas that these words are talking about. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Righteousness has to do with the arena of the law court. God is the judge. And he sees me not as a miserable sinner standing in the docket waiting for judgment, but he sees me as righteous and he acquits me and he forgives me and he declares to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in him. Righteousness has to do with the law court. Holiness has to do with the religious sphere, the temple. Through his sacrifice, Christ makes us pleasing to God. Christ the priest and Christ the sacrifice make our way to God available. And it makes fellowship with God possible. Sinful beings are saints through the cleansing work of Christ. So holiness has to do with the temple, the religious sphere. Redemption has to do with the slave market. Although our sins landed us in in Satan's power as slaves to him and our flesh, Christ has redeemed us from his grip and has brought us back into God's service where there's love and joy and the outworking of our calling as servants, not of Satan, but of Jesus Christ, our good Lord and Master. So all these words are dealing with a different arena. First then, let's look at righteousness. We'll consider first the the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, Lord's Day 5 outlines that the mediator must be true man, righteous man, and true God. And so you see right there that righteousness is made explicit. It's important to us. Well, what is his righteousness? What is this righteousness that we so much need? What's the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Our Lord Jesus lived his life on this earth in complete obedience to the law and the will of God, even through suffering and rejection. Hebrews 2 says that he was made perfect through suffering. He was like his brothers in every respect. He was human, yet he was without sin. And this is possible because of his supernatural birth, because he wasn't born to the corruption of Adam, But he was born divine. He wasn't subject to the corruption that we all share in being sons of Adam. So Jesus Christ is the righteous one. The one who has achieved a level of righteousness never before seen. During his life, he fulfilled all righteousness. He did all that was necessary before God. We read about that in Matthew 3. And in one act of righteousness... He gave justification and life for all men. And through his obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Romans 5. And 2 Corinthians 5 sums up the matter in that well-known verse, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so it becomes quite obvious that Christ's righteousness is very closely connected to us. Because everything depends 
on our status before God. If we stand before God as guilty sinners, then we're worthy of judgment and condemnation. But if we stand before Him as righteous children, then we're worthy of His adoption, of His blessings, of His favor, of eternal life, and many other things. In the so-called law court of God, He doesn't impute to me my sins, but He imputes to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous. Of course, this righteousness is appropriated by us by faith, by by trusting in what He's done for us. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is so closely connected to our lives that the Bible rarely mentions the word righteousness without immediately connecting it to us. Every time the Apostle Paul and other writers in the New Testament are talking about righteousness, they're talking about how the righteousness of Jesus Christ is ours by faith. And so it's intimately connected to our daily lives in many ways. One, it means that I cannot and I ought not to try to earn God's favor or in any way uh, apart from resting in the merits of Jesus Christ. This is an important point, one that many New Testament writers bring home. You can't earn God's favor. You cannot. And you ought not to try. Being a better husband being a better wife, being a better better student, being a better friend, is not going to earn God's favor. You can't be a better dad, wife, or child to do that. Your life could be a complete failure in every human sense of the word, and you can still be righteous before God, because your righteousness doesn't depend on you, depends on Jesus Christ. His righteousness is yours. This also means that any so-called God that requires from me the righteousness of Christ for just, that requires from me any other righteousness except for Christ is no God at all. It's an idol and it wants to put you under slavery. You see this in the face of trials and failures so often. Often we get so worked up when things happen in our lives, which are significant when we lose our job or there's pressure or perhaps breaking in our relationships and suddenly we start questioning everything. Does God really love me? Why has he let this happen to me? What value do I have? Suddenly we're not so sure that God could love us. Well, what's happened here? Why has my recent stress about my job or about my relationship sent me into such a tailspin? Well, it's because my job became my savior. It was the path to satisfaction, to respectability, to stature. Or it's because I put too much in that relationship, not enough stock in my relationship with the Lord. I became convinced that this person could solve my problems and give me what I wanted and what I needed. But that's a promise that's sure to be broken. The righteousness of Jesus Christ gives me my worth, gives you your stature, gives you your satisfaction. It gives you your standing before God 
where it really matters. And so when hardship or disaster strikes, what we need to remember is that Jesus Christ gives me my standing before God. No one else. And so no matter what trial or hardship comes along, no matter what failure happens in my life, no matter how I fail in the things that I do in my life, nothing can change the fact that Jesus' righteousness is mine by faith. He's done all that is necessary in the sight of God for me to be a loved and accepted child of His. And so we can carry that confidence into our life. When you know that Jesus Christ has done everything for you, then you're free to minister and to serve to others, offering the love of God to your neighbor, because you know that you can't do anything to earn God's love. Jesus Christ has done it. You're free to serve, to live a life of service, not a life of bondage, not a life trying to pay your own ransom. Related to this is another aspect of Jesus, of the righteousness of Christ to our own life, and that is this, that no amount of negative self-talk or condemnation from others can interfere with God's declaration that you are righteous. The devil would like nothing better than to take away from you the assurance that you are a beloved child of God, forgiven and righteous in Jesus Christ. The devil would like nothing better than to do that. And so he tries to take away your standing before God, but we need to remember what God thinks of us. And that it's not related to how good of a wife you are, or how much you earn, or how many friends you have, or how popular you are at school. It's based on the fact that you have a mediator in Jesus Christ who is your own flesh and blood, and that He's a perfect mediator, and that He's truly God. And He'll give you all that you need by His divine power. And so you see that the person and work of Jesus Christ is intimately related to your life, even down to the things that we do and how we think and how we act. Well, if we move on to consider that Jesus Christ is also our holiness, we again see how closely connected the work and person of our Jesus Christ is to our lives. The aspect of holiness is very closely related to righteousness, but as we mentioned before, the sphere is different. What I mean is that talking we're talking about a lot of the same things in terms of God's favor and blessing as with righteousness, but in a different arena. Before God's justice was in mind, now God's holiness is in view. Before the law court was the arena, now we go to the temple. The book of Hebrews is the main source for this topic, even though 1 Corinthians, where this quote comes from, is is sprinkled with this idea of our holiness. And it all comes from the understanding that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. That He came as a great high priest to cleanse a people for Himself through the sacrifice of Himself. Christ is both the high priest and the sacrifice. He's the mediator and the sacrifice. The priest and the lamb. 
And the result of his work of giving his life in order to make us holy is that we can draw near to God. That's what the book of Hebrews talks about. So that we can experience fellowship with God. So that our lives can be a pleasing aroma. An incense offering to God. How does the person of Jesus Christ relate to this? Well, he's a human priest. Not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. But at the same time, he offers himself as a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. And in order to do that effectively, he had to be a righteous man so that his sacrifice would be acceptable to God. You see, our sacrifices would not have been because they would have been tainted by sin. But his was perfect. And he had to be true God so that he could bear the burden of God's wrath against sin and even more to restore us to righteousness and life. That is to say, this holiness is like his righteousness, a new reality for us. We are the holy people of God. But Christ also renews us by his divine power to make us more holy each step of our lives as we progress in sanctification before him. So how does this relate with our lives? Well, if Christ's righteousness allows me to stand before God, his holiness allows me to live with God. Being cleansed through the work of Jesus Christ means that we can experience fellowship with God because the way has been opened up to God. And so the impact of being holy and of that ongoing work in our lives is profound. It means that we're washed from sin. And we don't need to carry the guilt and the stain of our past sins everywhere we go, especially not into fellowship with God. We've all sinned. Some of us have really sinned. And some of us have really, really sinned. But when we're in Christ, His perfect sacrifice has washed away our sins. Even our bad ones. Especially our bad ones. Did Christ endure all that he did on the cross only to be able to not cleanse us from some of our sins? Did Jesus Christ bear the burden of God's wrath against sin except for that one that you just can't get over? No. Jesus Christ is powerful enough to cleanse us from all our sins. They're all washed away atoned by His blood. He's washed us whiter than snow. Now, we may still have to deal with the consequences of our sins. The guilt is washed away, but the consequences are still be there, are still there in broken relationships, in the pain. I think that someone experiencing going through addiction is illustrative of what we all go through. If I have been addicted to cocaine in the past, but by the grace and power of God was able to kick the habit, then great. Praise God. His power is stronger than my desires. But there's still going to be broken relationships. 
There's still going to be uh, perhaps a broken marriage or or money problems, etc. from my addiction. Those won't just disappear. It's going to take time, effort, patience, forgiveness, much prayer to bring restoration. Well, it's the same with chronic selfishness or chronic anger or bitterness. Those might not be treatable addictions, but they still wreak havoc with our life, with our relationships. But after confessing our sins and finding our righteousness and holiness in Jesus Christ, then we begin to live not for ourselves or for our desires, but for the one who is far greater than us. It will slowly make me less focused on myself, less focused on meeting my own desires, and it will heal the relationships and make me focused on Him and serving Him in all my life as He makes me more holy, as He makes me more like Jesus Christ. Well, how does this relate to the person of Jesus Christ? Well, in every way possible. I have a high priest who cleanses me and makes me holy, but who can also sympathize with me in my weakness. He continues to hear your cries for help in the middle of your struggle against sin. And He brings them before the throne of God and He gives you the power to endure and to overcome. He is a powerful high priest because He's Almighty God. He is a sympathetic high priest because He is a human being, just like all of you. And we need to remember, brothers and sisters, this holiness is for those who are not holy to begin with. Jesus Christ is the high priest for those who struggle against sin, who suffer under it, who are broken by it. Don't believe me? Well, then consider the Corinthian church, the ones to whom these words were written. This is a church that was full of fighting, that condoned incestual relationships, that had sexual immorality present in the life of the church, where the rich dominated the poor and many other problems. And yet when Paul writes to them, he says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be holy. The people in Corinth were sanctified in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and so are we. Our great high priest makes holy those who are covered with sin. And he hears the cries of those who struggle in this sin-sick world. He mediates before the throne of God the prayers and the petitions of his people to God as we struggle against sin. He mediates the prayers of those who are trapped in the rubble in Haiti. He hears the prayers of the children who are on the verge of starvation. The prayers of the doctors who have far more patience than they're able to treat. The prayers of the survivors who have experienced so much. He hears our prayers. And he brings them before the throne of God as perfect prayers. When we ask him to bless the aid efforts in Haiti. To bless the medical efforts. And to bless the advance of the gospel. Our prayers, offered in weakness, offered with 
a lack of understanding of His plan, given with a lack of words, are pleasing to God because Jesus Christ is our holiness and He is our great High Priest. The third aspect of our life that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 30 is that Christ is our redemption. And here, of course, the person and the work of Jesus Christ is is so closely connected with us that you can't even try to remove them. He's repeatedly, throughout the Old and New Testament, referred to as our Redeemer. That's who He is. He's the one whom the Israelites were hoping to come and to redeem them from exile, the pit, death, slavery, bondage, etc. For every word that the Bible uses to describe the situation that we through sin plunge ourselves into, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. How does He accomplish this? Well, it has much to do with His atoning work as the sacrifice. It has to do with the imputation of His righteousness to us. It has to do with His work as a mediator for us as both priest and lamb, which we've already talked about. But here, perhaps more than the other areas, it has to do with His office as king. Notice that in 1 Corinthians 1, the title Christ is used frequently by Paul. And we should be sensitive to that. The title Christ has to do with the Messiah, the coming son of David, the king who would come to redeem, to save God's people. And so we have a Redeemer. Our Redeemer lives. And because we have a Redeemer, because He is the great Redeemer, we have hope in every situation in our lives. We don't know a hopeless situation, no matter how hopeless it might seem. Sometimes in the middle of a difficult trial or after hearing some Hard news, that, that pit is all we see. That darkness. But we need to remember that we are the redeemed of the Lord. That Christ has saved us from the pit, from death, from hopelessness. Though it is in those times difficult to grasp, that is precisely the thing that we must grasp. That Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. And we do this especially in the face of adversity, of uncertainty, of fear. No matter what happens, we have certain hope because we have a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman because he became to this earth in our own flesh. A redeemer because he gave up his life and he sits at the right hand of God for us. Our mediator redeems us from death and gives us life. And we have confidence not only for ourselves in the trials that we face, but for others as well. Knowing that Christ is the Redeemer means that when our friend or when our neighbor is facing that situation of hopelessness, when they're in the pit, we can show them the Redeemer. And we have confidence not only for ourselves and for our friends and neighbors, but for the whole world as well. We have hope for the people of Haiti who were ravaged by the earthquake this past week. We have hope for them because we know that the Redeemer lives. Wherever there is a sin-created hole, Jesus Christ is standing over it as the Redeemer 
to pull us out. Wherever there is disaster, devastation, destruction, and death, Jesus Christ stands as the King to give true recovery, hope, restoration, and life. It was sin that ultimately put the people of Haiti into this mess. Now hear me right here. I'm not saying that it was directly because of their sin. I'm not saying that God was directly punishing them for their sins. How could I say that? Does God hate Haiti as some people have been saying? Perhaps you hear reports of that on the radio or TV or the internet. No. God does not hate Haiti. God loves Haiti. And He's been showing His love to that country through the the words of the missionaries who bring the gospel there and have been doing so for so long, through the ongoing support that this country has been receiving for who knows how long, and through the constant aid efforts that are being given now, God is showing His love for this people. God has compassion on the downtrodden, on the poor, on the oppressed. But this disaster is another episode of the brokenness of this world. And of this whole creation that sin has caused. This is another birth pang of a creation that's groaning under the power of sin. But from this terrible situation, Jesus Christ is the great Redeemer. It's going to be countries like the United States and Canada many other countries that are going to bring aid and relief. But brothers and sisters, you can be sure that no one is doing that outside of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You can be sure that when the army or the Red Cross or those aid organizations, when Coram Deo and the people they have in Haiti bring help to Haiti, they do it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the great physician. He's the great Redeemer. He is the one, the only one, who can and has finally and decisively defeated the power of sin and given hope to even the people in Haiti. And so alongside that physical aid will come the spiritual support and the kind words of Christians who are going to bring a message of hope that's deeper and stronger and longer lasting than the immediate needs that those people have right now. They have my brother-in-law and dear friend holding prayer and worship services in the streets, proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His great power for them, especially now. A message of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, who hears their prayers for help and answers them. They have Jesus Christ, the great mediator, listening to them, caring for them, and bringing them peace, even in the midst of devastation. So many in that country already have the peace and support that they need, even in this face of unspeakable hardship, because they know that their Redeemer lives. He is their God. He is a true man. And He is a righteous man. 
Of course, the person of Jesus Christ is important to every aspect of our lives. We don't believe in an idea or a philosophy or a certain system of salvation. We trust in Jesus Christ, a person. We rest in His righteousness. We trust in His holiness before the throne of God. And we have confidence in His redemption, both today and forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.